Matthew 21. Okay, we're going to start in verse 33. And just remind you before we do our reading that Jesus was questioned by the religious leaders about by what authority he was doing these things. And so you remember he turns the tables on them and says, I'll ask you a question. If you can answer it, I'll answer yours. And he says, what, um, by whose authority did John come? Was it by God or was it from man? And you remember, they knew they'd be in trouble if they answered that either way. Because if they said, by God, then they'd have to, Jesus would say, why didn't you listen to him? And if they say, by man, then the people would riot because they hold John as a prophet from God. So they had to say, I don't know. And then Jesus went, goes into three parables to uh, convict them of rejecting their own Messiah. So we did the first parable last week. We're doing this, the second parable this week. And then we'll do the next par- last parable next week. I tried to put them together, but there's just too much information. So we're going to stick with the second parable this morning. So let's stand together for the reading of God's holy, authoritative word. Hear the word of the Lord to you this morning. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants, those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, authoritative word. May truly bless it to our hearts and lives this very morning. You may be seated. Brothers and sisters in Christ, he was a star football player for his high school team. And believe it or not, it was in Iowa, a small town in Iowa. He, you want to hear that, right? So he even gained a spot on what they call the Shrine Bowl team. And he led that team to victory, and he earned the Most Valuable Player Award. Now, unfortunately, believe it or not, even though he played that well, to his disappointment, when it came time for uh, the college, colleges to look at pr- prospective players, there's not one Ivy League team that picked him. He was left and, he, and no one wanted him. 
So he ended up finding a small college in Iowa where he could play. But unfortunately, for the first three years of college, he was benched. He didn't play at all. So they played him his fourth year. In his fourth year, of course, as the story goes, they led, he led him to victory. He brought the team uh, to the playoffs and everything. And again, he did very well for that team. Um, so what happened was, after that, he was excited to, to know that he would be on the radar for the NFL draft when he graduated college. But the draft came and the draft went. And not one team bid on him. So here he is wondering what's going on. He's got this talent. He's, he's played very, very well. He's got MVP championships, uh, um, MVP awards. And so finally a team in the NFL picked him up only to drop him after the first five weeks. So they put him on the practice squad and then they got rid of him in five weeks. Well, he wasn't dismayed. He didn't give up. What he did was he worked at night stocking shelves at a grocery store and he worked out during the day in his own college to keep himself in shape. Just in case. Well, sure enough, um, there was an arena team, which is kind of low-grade football for us NFL fans. There was an arena team that heard about him and said, you know, we really need a quarterback. I think this guy would be good. He did so well in the arena league. Of course, he led his team to victory that there was one NFL team that was desperate. They were dying. They had such a bad record, and they were looking for a good quarterback. And they heard about this guy, and they said, you know what? Let's give him a chance. So they actually brought him on to their Europe team. Believe it or not, I didn't know this. NFL has teams in Europe. Again, it's kind of like a scrub team compared to the NFL. But he did really well over there. So the next year, they brought him to America, put him on their team as the third string quarterback. That's in case the first one gets hurt, the second one gets hurt, then the third guy might get a chance. The the whole first season, he did what we call sitting on the bench. Niente. Next year, the, the second string, something happened where he was traded or something, and the first string got hurt. So he was the next guy in line to play. Well, that year, he brought that team from a losing record to three and something to all the way to like 13 victories and only three losses. He brought them into the playoffs. Not only did he bring them into the playoffs, he brought them to the Super Bowl. Not only did he bring them to the Super Bowl, he won the Super Bowl. He had a record 414 passing yards, got the MVP again, and his name was Kurt Warner. And he played for St. Louis Rams. Now, why in the world am I talking about Kurt Warner when we're in a passage of Matthew 21 and Jesus with the religious leaders? Well, the interesting thing about Kurt, and how the analogy, it's not a perfect analogy, but I figure to get you in the arena of it. Think about this. In a similar way, Jesus came to lead his people to a bright and victorious future, only to be rejected by the powers that be in Israel, only to be rejected by the people of all people who should have recognized his unique authority, his unique power, his unique power, his unique character. Think of it this way. The powers that be said, well, what school is he from? Wasn't from an Ivy League, right? What rich family does he come from? Nah, he doesn't fit that. And so they passed him up. You think about it this way. Who in their right mind would reject the only one who could deliver you from your sins and bring you victory and earn a place for you in heaven? 
It's interesting because when Kurt Warner won the Super Bowl, the Sports Illustrated finally gets on the front of Sports, Sports Illustrated, and the caption read this way, Who is this guy? And unfortunately, that's where we are in the text here, where the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, Who are you? Who do you think you are? Come out of obscurity. Come here and start convicting us about shepherding God's flock and doing the right thing and being righteous. And then you have the nerve to come into our little temple. We have a nice thing going, man. We're selling stuff at the temple. We're making some good money. And you come here and clean it out. And you talk about it as my house. That's what we're going to see. And so they reject Jesus. And in this text, we're going to find some interesting information from Jesus himself about the motive the reason why they rejected him. So what I want to do, it's, it's a little clever. I, put it, I tried to be a little too clever maybe this week. And th- this is what we're going to see in the text. The one who was rejected by man was elected by God so that those who were excluded could be included. I don't know, I thought that was kind of clever. I usually wrestle, try to figure out some way to put it. So the one who was rejected by man was elected by God so that those who were excluded could be included. That's what we're going to see in this parable. And so let's take a look at the first thing. And it's uh, really, really the main hit here. And that is how Jesus was re- re- uh, rejected by man. Okay, now in this case, we look at the text. He wasn't just rejected by any men, but he was rejected by those of, who of all people should have recognized him and received him the most willingly, the religious leaders. And in contrast to all, most of the other parables, now if you remember, follow me, if you remember, parables are spoken in order to hide the truth from those who stubbornly refuse to see it, and in order to give the truth to those who have an open heart and who want to know the truth from God. And so Jesus would speak in parables so that those who stubbornly refuse to believe would not understand. Remember we saw that earlier in Matthew, that Jesus clearly says that's why, he quotes from the Old Testament, But in these parables, there's an exception to the rule. Because with these parables, Jesus uses these parables to make it abundantly clear to the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, exactly what he's talking about and who he's referring to. Very different than than the other parables, isn't it? And Jesus does it. This is very important. I saw this and it was like a light went on in my head. I was wrestling with it for a long time. Then all of a sudden, God does that. All of a sudden, you get the ding. You ever see that little idea thing? Well, that's what happens. Lights goes on when the Holy Spirit gives you this. And I saw that Jesus does it in such a way as to show just how righteous and just God's judgment on their stubborn unbelief is. In other words, even in our culture today, a lot of times people have a hard time grasping or understanding or i should say accepting the justice and the judgment of god right people are always talking about that's not fair is this just and what jesus wants to show here we're going to see in this parable is how just and good and holy and righteous god's justice is it's an important question isn't it don't we want to know i would think so Now, we hardly have to point out the meaning of the parable. I don't want to take too much time on this because, like I mentioned, it's so clear. The landowner in the parable is God. He's the one that owns the vineyard, right? It actually is an illusion, by the way. You can look this up later in your devotions. 
I always say that. I wonder if anybody actually, you know, I don't even I do that. But Isaiah chapter 5 is the background where Israel is likened to a vine that doesn't produce fruit and then God passes judgment on her. So Jesus basically uses that kind of language. And in this particular um, context, the landowner is God in this parable. The vineyard is Israel, just like in Isaiah 5. The tenants are the Jewish religious leaders. And the son, of course, is Jesus himself. And we don't have to wonder if this is the correct interpretation. For the priests and the elders and the teachers of the law, at the end of the parable, it tells us, they knew that Jesus was talking about them. So for all these theologians that aren't sure about who Jesus was talking about, the Pharisees knew, didn't they? Because at the end, they want to arrest him. Because they know Jesus is convicting them of their unbelief and their sin of rejecting the one who came to love us and give himself for us. God planted a vineyard, Israel, provided it with everything it needed. That's interesting. When you look at some of the details of the parable, you see Jesus points out he dug a well, he built a wall, he built a tower, watchtower. In other words, God provided for everything so that Israel the vine could flourish. Right? He put all the conditions were there. And the renters, all they had to do was work the land. And it should bear fruit. And then as you look in the parable, this is what happens. God sends, the landowner sends servants to go check when it's harvest time. Okay, give me some of the fruit. And what happens? The servants come. And the renters, what do they do? The tenants. They beat the servants. Those servants are the prophets that God sent. Throughout the whole Old Testament, you see God sending his prophets to his people to call them to return to God and to repent. And what do they do to those prophets? Just like in this case, they beat them, they treat them shamelessly, they stone them, and they kill some. But here's the interesting thing. After they do this, what does a landowner do? I listened to Randy Neighbor's sermon on this. He said, we're Americans. We'd be like, that, we're done. Bomb them. <laughs> we're finished, right? Make them a parking lot. But is that what the landowner does? No. He sends more of his servants. He gives them another chance. He's patient with them. He sends them again more than the first time to come and reason with them and get the fruit. And what do they do? They do the same thing they did to the first ones. And then we know Jesus tells us, the landowner says, look, I'll send my only son, my son. Certainly they'll respect the heir and they'll listen to him. And you understand, that you hear the tinge here of irony of justice. And so sure enough, when the heir comes, what do they say to one another? They say, hey, wait a minute. Let's kill him and then we'll get the inheritance. What we need to see in this text is very important to see how patient the landowner was. That's what Jesus is emphasizing here. Look how patient. Look how, how um, compassionate. Look how long he suffered, right? With these stubborn tenants. And we see in the Bible how long God put up with Israel, especially Israel's unbelieving leaders. How he gave them chances again and again to repent and turn back to him, only to have his mercy and his grace rebuffed again and again. They didn't call Jeremiah the weeping prophet for no reason. 
Still after all this, God in His love and His mercy sends His one and only Son. And you remember earlier in Matthew, uh, what does Jesus point out? I was sent to the sons of Israel. Remember that? That's His first call. Jesus came for His people first and foremost. He came for the Jews. They're the promised people. They have the promises. They have the law. They have the covenants. Messiah was promised from their line. So what do they do when the Son comes? They throw Him out of the vineyard and they murder Him. And that's why the Bible talks about He he suffered and died outside the camp in shame. Now, when the Pope came and visited Philadelphia, this was not too long ago, so everybody remembers this, uh, my church planning coach, Bruce, said, Mama me. Well, he didn't say Mama me. That's the way I would say it. But he, he said, Wow. That's the Eng- English is wow. Italian is Mama me, right? Um, so I, he said, um, They shut down the schools for like three or four days for his visit. And then my, my, my buddy Bruce said, I don't know if they'd do that for Jesus. And I said, Bruce, I know they wouldn't do that for Jesus. Because what did they do for, to Jesus when he came? Did they shut the, the, the roads down and have a big parade for three days? No, they nailed them to a tree. We don't have to guess what sinful man would do. One of the main points of this parable, if not the main point, is this. Why they rejected Jesus? Look at verse 38. This is important. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and let's take his inheritance. Listen, this is what they were doing. They were rejecting the one that God sent them to bring them back to himself in a right relationship with God. And why were they doing this? This is important. Because they weren't interested in God's good purposes for them and for Israel. They weren't interested in God's glory. They weren't interested in the giver. They were interested in the gifts that God could give. In other words, they wanted the inheritance, but they didn't want the one who gives the inheritance. It's like almost saying, like if a parent's passing away, well, hurry up and die so I can get the money. You understand? That's what's going on here. What's going on here is they're saying, we don't care about God. We don't care about having a relationship with His one and only Son. We just want all the benefits and the pleasures and the, and the privileges thereof without the relationship. that's the interesting thing. Here you're facing the formidable foes of evil, of sin, of condemnation. And you have the opportunity, as it were, to choose Kurt Warner to bring you out from your 3-13 and 13 season. And what do you do instead? You kill him. William Taylor puts it this way. They want to do away with God. They want to thrust him out of the picture and to get on and to live life in, this, in his world without him. It's powerful, isn't it? Now, before we click, cluck our tongues, is that what you do when you go, is that, a, is that what you say? Cluck your tongues? Anyway, before we do that, like, 
about the Pharisees. Let's, let's point the finger at our own selves and ask ourselves and our culture and people today, how many have heard about Jesus? How many have heard about His claims and they know about what He did and they still reject their only hope to find their way back home to God? Their only hope to have sins forgiven. Their only hope to have an assured place in paradise when they die. And why? Because they'd rather reject Him along with the eternal life He's promised to give in order to get some temporal pleasure in this life. To get some kind of comfort. Personal comfort. Or some kind of position or glory. Once again, they want to live in God's world without God. They want to enjoy God's good gifts. They could care less about the giver. I think it's interesting. I've been meditating on it, thinking about the application. And it seems to me they would want to not only enjoy the world without a relationship with the one who created the world, but here's the thing that hit me. They want to go to the dwelling place of God when they die, even though they refused God a dwelling place in their heart when they lived here on earth. You understand the irony? God says, I want in. God says, I, I want to lovingly rule over you and guide you and love you and show you my way and fellowship with you and delight in you and you and me. And, and you've said, no. You have no place in my heart. I refuse. And yet how many funerals have we been to for people that have lived a life of rejection? And what's the question? Well, they're in a better place. I mean, what's the comment? And I have to say, I can't answer that question. I'm not going to touch that one. Because the truth is, unless you receive Jesus now, there's no promise you're going to be received in heaven when you die. And really, here's the issue Jesus is getting at. It's very important. There's really no debate as to what should be done to those ungrateful, murdering fiends. This is what Jesus wants to prove to the Pharisees themselves. It's absolutely reasonable. It's justified and it's understandable that God would judge such people who murder His servants and murder His Son. There's nothing unreasonable about them having to pay for what they've done. As a matter of fact, Jesus makes them give the verdict out of their own mouths. Here it is. Jesus says, what do you think should be done to such men, such people? What do you think that the landowner will do? And here was their answer, verse 41. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. And this is what we need to see. When God does judge the wicked, especially those who have heard again and again and have willingly and stubbornly rejected Christ, God will be completely just and righteous and good in doing so. And here, the enemies of God confess that to be true. That's Jesus. 
C.S. Lewis has wisely put it this way once, many, many years ago. I've quoted this many times because it's very powerful. He says, there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God will say, thy will be done. Powerful. You didn't want me. Now you don't get me. I tried to convince you. I loved on you. I showed you patience. I kept sending my best and you kept killing them. You've given me no choice. Make it so. You have your wish. Jesus was rejected. And unfortunately, as we're going to see in the next number of chapters, it just gets worse. But this is the word of the Lord and I'm called to preach the word of the Lord, not just happy stuff that I like or don't like. But the next thing is very much more positive in this sense. He was um, rejected by men, but he's elected by God. Look with me at Jesus' concluding uh, remarks of application of the parable found in verse 42. Look at what Jesus says to them. Have you never read in in the Scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Builders... In this text, and as Jesus is quoting it, the builders, what they would do is they would look for a really perfect stone. Now, scholars are debating whether it was a cornerstone for the foundation, which the rest of the foundation was built upon, or rather it was like a capstone on the top of the building that that kept the two walls joined perfectly together. But either sense, we know what it means. It means it's the most important stone. That we do know. And what, Je- and what the Old Testament prophecy is saying and what Jesus was referring, pointing out to the Pharisees, this is what the religious leaders were doing. They were looking around the rocks to find that precious rock. And when they got to Jesus, they said, ah, this is nothing special. This is just some ordinary piece of stone. And they threw it on the dung heap. And they kept going. And so what the text says is, boys, as Rainy Neighbors puts it, you messed up. This is the perfect one. This is the chief cornerstone. This is the one that I'm going to build my kingdom around. And you rejected him as something common. You despised him. You tossed him away. The thing that you saw is not even worth keeping. God used, chose to use as the most important in the whole household of faith. Now you've heard the saying, man proposes but God disposes. In this case, it's the opposite, right? It's man disposes, but God proposes. That's what the text Jesus quotes here is saying. It's from Psalm 118. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. In other words, who's done this? Who's chosen him as the precious stone? God has. The Lord has. And He's done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. It's wondrous. Once again, we see this clear picture of the upside-down kingdom. What man rejects, God elects. What we consider as nothing and worthless, God says it's the most precious thing in this universe. Jesus Himself. So here, and then we'll go to our last point. He wasn't raised in the approved rabbinic schools. 
He didn't come from one of their uh, accepted rabbinic families. There was nothing, Isaiah says, in his appearance that we should desire him. Born into a humble, humble carpenter's family that were so poor they couldn't offer the regular offering you're supposed to offer for the firstborn son. They had to find two doves, which is allowed for those who are dirt poor. You remember what Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. And yet he's King of kings and Lord of lords and God has crowned him with many crowns. Rejected by men, elected by God, and last of all, and then we're done, this happened so that those who were excluded could be included. Very important. Look at verse 43. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. So even this sad, tragic story of Jesus' rejection by his own people, Israel, especially the leaders, has, as they say, a silver lining. And I would say a gold lining because it's so awesome. Their rejection of Jesus the Messiah, the rest of the New Testament tells us this, brought about the inclusion of those who had been excluded in ancient times. Because they rejected their Messiah, what happens? It's opened up to the rest of the world. And Jesus no longer goes just to the lost sheep in Israel. Now in the New Covenant, He goes to the Jew first, but then to the Gentiles. Because notice what's going to happen here. This is very important to see this. He says the kingdom of God will be taken from you. He's speaking to who? Israel as a nation. It's no longer God in Israel. It's going to be given to another people who will bear its fruit. Who is the other people? The other people, guess what? It's you and me. It's the church of Jesus Christ made up of Jew and Gentile who receive Messiah Jesus. Now Jesus says, I don't care what nationality you are. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what socioeconomic class. You receive me as Messiah and you are one of my holy people with all the rights and privileges thereof. It's an important shift here because you have to understand a few years after this, after Jesus' resurrection, it was about A.D. 70, the Romans came in and tore the temple down to the ground, never to be built again. Israel is no longer, as a nation, the central place. Now you want to know God? Guess where you find Him? In His church, made up of all tribes, tongues, and nations, found all over the world. The new covenant. In the blood of Christ. God is going to create a new community of faith made, it made up of Jew and Gentile. I'm going to quote one quote here from William Taylor who puts it this way. Because I, I, when he said this, it's so powerful. Hang with me the last couple of minutes here. He said this, So if you plan to go to Israel over the New Year's break and you were hoping for a spiritual experience, as you went to discover God's people or God's word or God's kingdom or God's special revelation of himself, I'm really sorry because you won't find any of those things there. All the great spiritual hopes that are built up amongst religious peoples around the place Israel and the people of the Jews are misplaced. Cancel your holiday plans and go to church instead. 
Because that is where you will find God's people, God's house, God's dwelling, amongst the people who have recognized Christ, God's King, His Son, His heir. Now, I'm not saying, I I, I would add to that as I read that, I'm sure Israel is still a nice place to go to vacation. But that's not the special place where God dwells. God dwells now with His people, the church. And it's interesting to know we gather here and kids are screaming and sometimes it's chaotic and sometimes I get up, oh, do I really want to go to, 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 to get up and go to church this morning? But guess what? This is the special place where God meets with us amongst his people. When we gather in obedience to him to partake of the sacraments, to, uh, to hear the word of God preached, to have fellowship one with another, to call upon his name in prayer and ask him to do the things he tells us to ask him to do and to praise his name. This is the special place where God meets with us. And if you want proof of that, I have one cross-reference, and then we're going to wrap up. It's 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 4. I preached on it a couple years ago, I think now, and I think we do have it on the, um, on the net, so you can always go back and listen to that. 1 Peter 2, 4, and Peter says everything I just said, but of course, much, much better than I could. He says, as you come to him, that is Jesus, the living stone, Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Remember who the holy priesthood was in the Old Testament? Well, now the holy priesthood is the church. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. My brother, my sister, the question here is, Are you among the new covenant people of God? Made up of people from among Jews and Gentiles who have recognized Jesus for the chosen, precious, glorious stone that He is. That's the beauty of the gospel now is God accepts anyone who accepts Him in Christ. Anyone that humbles themselves and says, you are my God and my Lord and bows down and says, be my Savior. There is another option and it's not good to be among those who will be crushed and broken to pieces by the stone that you rejected over and over and over again. Even after multiple invitations to turn from your sin and unbelief and to embrace the one God sent to forgive you and to give you new life and a place with Him in heaven. And I close with this. What a joyful position it is to belong to Him, to bear the the kingdom of God's fruits. Remember? The old people failed to bear the fruit. Well, we get to bear the fruit of faith, hope, and love, of righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Ghost. We bear the fruit of testifying to the world with the authority, all the authority of Jesus 
right? When Jesus says, I, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, go and make disciples of nation, all nations. We have that inheritance. And what a joy and what a privilege it is to be called the name Christian, whether we're Jew or Gentile believer, to be a part of the church and to be useful to God, to bear fruit that will come with us into heaven someday, where God could say, well done. And we say, well done. Lord, what about all these sins? I don't remember any sins. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that for those who receive Jesus as the precious stone He is, you will remember our sins no more. And we thank you that we will bear fruit if we trust in you. You promised some 30, some 50, some 100 fold. Father, we pray this morning, Lord, that there be any among us at all in, in our circle that don't yet know you, that haven't really bowed the knee to Jesus, God, please make it so in your mercy. Send your Holy Spirit to show them their sin and their need. And Lord, show them, open their eyes to see the beauty and the glory and the majesty and the compassion and the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who is full of grace and truth. Oh Jesus, it's in your name we pray and for your glory. This Sunday sermon was preached by the Reverend Dr. Santo Garofolo. New City's Sunday sermon is recorded live on location at New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. If you're in the Atlantic City area, stop by. Our address is 215 North Sovereign Avenue, Atlantic City, New Jersey. Visit us online at newcityac.org. That's www.newcityac.org. Oh God is written and performed by the Reverend Dr. Santo Garofolo. Join us next week for a brand new New Cities Sunday Sermon.